Charles, um, can you kind of share some of your background for, for those that may not know you, you know, like I've known you in the industry for almost 20 years, I guess. And, you know, you've had your hands in, you know, some of the offensive stuff. You've done a lot of training in government and commercial space. You've done some development work. You, you're a great orator, you know, like there's a lot of like things I've enjoyed from you just watching you push people to think and not push buttons over the years. And that's just always been really refreshing. And I mean, I still have the t-shirt you guys gave me in 2002 for CTF stuff. And um, can you share kind of your background, where you came from, what got you into the world that you're in, you know, that started a long time ago and where you're at now? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it's a relatively interesting story, although I, s- I think a lot of guys in InfoSec have interesting stories. Um, so mine started probably when I met Rulof Temming. Uh, Dan, as you know, Rulof is the guy who founded Paterva um, and then later sold it. Uh, and I met him when he and I were both coincidentally in Germany. He, he was working there and I was studying there. We got introduced. Um, and Rudolf was working for a company back in South Africa, where we're both from, that had spun off from a government research institute. There was a, a sort of a, a state-owned, state-led uh, research institute called this, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. And um, they they would kind of seed technology, uh, you know, for government use, but also to kind of spin out um, mm-hmm. you know, commercial projects. And at that time in South Africa, we we were still living under apartheid. And as a result, we were, we were sanctioned a lot. You couldn't buy things, couldn't sell things, were very isolated. Um, but also very much, uh, I think, felt ourselves to be in conflict, you know, with the rest of the world, with our African neighbors, even internally. And so a lot of money and effort went into defense technologies, you know, everything from building helicopters to armor for tanks, uh, but also to, to nuclear, nuclear weapons were, were developed out of that same space, uh, but also what they termed at that time data security. Mm-hmm. And so they, because they couldn't buy in things like, uh, like strong crypto algorithms, they were export restricted out of the US. Um, this, this council would, would develop things like, um, you know, crypto algorithms, network security products, data security products. And, uh, and, and a business kind of got spun out uh, from that, that, you know, built everything from, you know, literally you know, custom algorithms implemented on uh, on their own silicon, through to like, firewall and network products based on uh, FreeBSD at the time. Mm-hmm. And Rudolf had been working for them as, I guess, uh, sort of an, an SE. Uh, you know, it wasn't as well structured back then, but he was like a technical guy for them, and uh, he got me a job there. That was uh, that was back in 1997. He and I started working together nice. there. And it was, it was, it was just, it was so much fun. You know, it was all kind of green fields, blue water stuff, you know, um, we were inventing things as we went along. E- everyone else was much smarter than us. You know, everyone was kind of PhDs and, and, you know, proper electrical engineers and guys had come from that research institute. So it was a, a wonderful place of learning. 
and um, there was kind of just a lot of technical adventure that was happening mm-hmm. um, until uh, late '99, where when that business got bought up uh, by a big corporate, and in that corporate group they had you know other elements that were doing similar things to ours, and there was a lot of kind of mixing and matching and you know cutting and consolidating. The whole atmosphere got a bit uh, toxic. And uh, the funny part of the story is Rudolf and I had spent a lot of time kind of trying to read the rumor mill, trying to understand where things were going, figure out, you know, who we should align with politically. And uh, we got, um, I suppose the the PC word for it is drunk one night and um, we were eating tacos and drinking Mexican beer and sort of trying to figure out what to do with the world. And somewhere it just occurred to us that, the only way to really control your destiny, the only way to really know what's going to happen tomorrow is if you, is if you just decide and do it, you know, it's going to stop waiting for other people to decide, stop waiting for things to wash out and, and just do something. And, um, Rudolf had, had been developing some skill and some uh, interest in pen testing. It's gone on at that time. When it was, was it Verizon? Verisign was, um, Verisign was, was kind of a, a thought leader in that space and they had courses. He had gone on a course with them and come back very excited. We decided we were going to just try and start a pen testing business. So, uh, so we quit and, and we did. And that was in, uh, that was in 2000, 14th of February, so Valentine's day, 2000, which tells you a little bit about, <laughs> about our social lives. And, um, we, we worked out of Rulos house. Uh, he had, he had just bought a house, I think. And, uh, we used his bedroom as an office and we, we had to borrow computers. We didn't have any. So we'd borrow computers every time we got a gig. And, uh, you know, we got a gig through someone we knew and then got another gig through someone we knew. And uh, kind of over time, uh, it grew uh, until it was, you know, a, a pretty effective company, I suppose, that focused on, on red teaming stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember reading... I want to say it was in the summer of 2000, I read, I read this paper that I think Roloff wrote on recon. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and for me at the time I was, I was doing some red team stuff too, but it was really helpful in having somebody else, you know, talk, share their methods and, you know, you know, you're doing, you know, zone transfers and, you know, like Mm. all these things that, you know you can't find anymore but Mm. it was a good time i remember reading that and then that was that was a long time ago that was cool yeah and i think i think we we kind of had two things going for us right from the right from the beginning um the the one was you know i think ruloff particularly set a tone of being very aggressively uh, i suppose almost technically confrontational there was a lot of you know but why in his in his thinking why do we do it like this why do they do it like this is this really the best way to do it um, mm-hmm. and really didn't tolerate much um intellectual laziness in that in that sense mm-hmm. and kind of demanded that if you know if you wanted to do something a certain way that you would be able to take that sort of questioning mm-hmm. and spend a lot of time also just thinking thinking about how things are done and why they're done the way they're done um, and then the other thing I think we had going for us, which kind of segues to your point about the training is I think both of us were, were really excited about the impact that what we did would have on other people. Like we really wanted it to matter. 
And when that's your orientation, you, you kind of think about what you're doing differently, right? You, you, you're, you're less concerned about what your profits are. You're less concerned about right. how much energy it is for you. Uh, you're less concerned about how the industry views you. What you're concerned about is, is this actually making a difference to the customer? And, um, and Rudolf was really passionate. He didn't want to do anything that didn't matter. Yeah. And, um, you know, to, to the extent that he would you know, he'd pin customers down, it almost like wrestled them to the ground and insist that they paid attention until they understood what he was saying. Um, and I think that brought a lot of energy into the work we were delivering, but also became a kind of natural driver for the training. Mm-hmm. Because really the reason we went into training is because we wanted people to understand what we were thinking. We wanted them to see the world our way. We wanted them to, to kind of get it, you know, more than, more than anything. And, uh, and I think that drove a lot of innovation. You know, it's why we started developing CTFs. It's why we worked on the tools that we, that we did. I think we put a lot into training because we wanted people to come out feeling like they got it, that they got something that we had. No, I, and kind of to share with you, um, some of the other side of that for me was, um, that was really beneficial for me. Cause that's kind of was always my personality type too. And mm. I started packing ninjas in 2005, I think. And, um, you know, it was really out of the vein of like, I don't care about your compliance. I don't care about your regulatory stuff. It's like, if you don't solve these problems, then what's, what are we doing? You know? Mm. Um, but then moving forward in time a few years ago, um, some of the founders of deliver fund, it's a, it's a nonprofit that targets and does attribution on human trafficking. They asked me to kind of develop a curriculum for cops to help transition them to thinking about, how do we think about an investigation? How do we think about intelligence? And, and that's a really different kind of contrast for them. Um, I used a lot of the same, you know, structure and methodology that you guys were putting in because that had influenced me so much of just making them ask questions that don't have to do with a technical checklist, you know, like on this target, like, do you know everything about them? What's their day look like? Where do they get their coffee? Who's their mom? Where do they order pizza? Like everything to really kind of, you know, humanize their process. Um, But really around the thinking and and it was heavily influenced by how you guys ran your classes. Cause I, you know, I've been to a hundred different training things over the years and it's like, a lot of times people are out there trying to do the swagger and, you know, I'm mm. the most awesome zealot out there or whatever it is, but it doesn't move the ball past something that's good just for them. It's, you know, like, so y'all's training was really kind of other centered and I was really pushing for that as well. And w- what I've seen on the, on, you know, the, the other side of that for, for us on deliver fund was, you know, we've got, a few hundred bad guys arrested in the last few years. And, you know, they're thinking about how that changes things in, in their investigations. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, how you guys were putting stuff together that influenced me to put that into classes, you know, what, 17, 18 years later, you know? Mm. So. 
Oh, you, you use such a you use such a cool word there. I really love the term, the sort of other other centric. There's a you know I suppose for businesses there's a real balance to be struck between you know what you have to do to maintain and sustain your business and deliver value to your not just your shareholders but also your staff and your suppliers and you know, all the people that depend on a business for a, for a livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I really believe that for security as a discipline to have any impact in the world, it needs to be first and foremost other centric. And I think that's where we're where we're failing. I think security needs to be a, a public benefit thing. You know, mm-hmm. that, that needs to be the starting point. And then you know, if there are ways for businesses to, to make profit, more or less profit off the back of that, then that's great. But I think what's happened to us in the last two decades is we've become first and foremost a business. You know, we talk about the security industry. We don't, we don't talk, um, you know, we don't talk about it in the same way that you talk about, uh, you know, public health or search and rescue or, uh, um, or policing, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, uh, in South Africa, they're very deliberate. And I think they do it elsewhere too. They talk about the South African police service. It's a, public benefit thing and you know i think what you call yourself and how you understand yourself in the world makes a big difference to how you behave and that orientation has changed in the last few decades and i think we're not going to really be effective until it changes back again and we start thinking of ourselves as a service rather than as an industry yeah i agree i mean it's i always tell everybody that regardless of what if we're selling, you know, consulting service or products or whatever, it's, we're selling trust, Mm. you know, like we're not selling anything other than trust in a relationship. Mm. And, you know, like that, I think that in the end people are going to sober up to what's what they've been buying or they're just going to probably be self so self absorbed in their own personal survival at the cost of their own company as well. Like, um, but yeah, I, I, it's wild to watch certain companies just blow up and then show up after they've been somewhere. And, um, the sentiment of the customers is just this bad aftertaste, right? Like mm. versus, man, we use those guys and they were so awesome it's, versus, you know, like it's more or less like, wow, we use those guys. And it was just because everybody else used those guys like Cisco, mm. you know, old Cisco stuff. You know, everybody bought Cisco. Why? Because nobody got fired, you know? Mm. And mm. Um, like, I, I remember too, like when the loft loft had kind of had their out, like they, they came out and became at stake and then became bigger and then kind of went away. Like I remember thinking like the number of people and egos in that team it had to have gotten to a tipping point where they had too many people in the room and too many smart people. And, and then it came and turned into this idea of like bigger is better. That was always the early case scenario problems with Mandiant, right? Is right. you fill a room full of alphas, you know, where they're, mm. they're used to individually being the top guy in their place. And, you know, we had nothing but arguments and people doing it their own way. You'd organize a plan and then there'd be three other plans, you know? Yeah. And it's really hard to manage that sort of thing. It's kind of an Avengers syndrome. 
where you know everyone's a superhero. It's hard to build a team. It's, right. It is. Well, I mean, also, like, I would just say, like, a lot of people, a lot of people have, you know, like, they, they think that they get the superhero status, and then they have, like, these massive life skill problems. That it's obvious that only the things in work are the things driving their whole existence, which just kind of becomes this, this problem. And then other younger guys see that rock star they want to emulate the rock star and then it's just like mm-hmm. becomes this cancer. Um, but. Yeah. It's an, it's another thing that I think we really need to find a way around in our industry is, is this rock star mentality. It's um, I mean, it's very clear that there are people that are genuinely incredibly good at what they do and need to be listened to and learned from. Uh, and I suppose emulated. I mean, those are all good things, but, mm-hmm. but somehow the, the way that devolves into a, a sort of a personality cult in our space is not, I think it's not healthy. And I, I think it's, uh, you know, as you, as you were touching on now, it, it creates a paradigm where people seek to, emulate rock stars but for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways or i think people just give up a lot because Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like you can be a rock star and maybe actually you don't want to be a rock star and Mm -hmm. um but it doesn't feel like there's space for a guy who's doing a decent nine to five and adding value in a small way you know it feels like he's not really accepted we 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 ran into that in in sense post quite early on because we had a bit of a a sort of a cult culture, you know, where it was all about how hard you're working, how much you're doing, how much you're publishing, where you're talking. And I remember having a guy work for us who, who I really liked and knew really well. Uh, but he just, he, like, he just wasn't making it in that sense. And mm-hmm. like, we confronted him on it and said, look, you, you know, you got to step up. And I, I remember being so shocked at the time when he said he didn't really want to. He didn't want to be a rock star. He was really quite happy to uh, to, to be just kind of you know a little bit better than average. Mm-hmm. And uh, and eventually he left. He didn't stick around, and I think we felt at the time it was appropriate. But what was interesting was he then moved on. Um, interestingly enough, into into forensics and incident uh, investigations, and became really good. Became really good at what he did, and I think he's very highly regarded now. And it was like as if the company that he moved to had a little bit more room for someone who was just good and not amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once they made a bit of room for him, I think he felt more comfortable and he was kind of able to find his own path. Uh, whereas in our sort of cult, almost like cult-like status at that time, uh, it didn't feel like there was space. The gap was too big. You know, what, what he was being asked to aspire to was, was too high. Yeah. And, uh, in that sense, some of those rock stars, I think, create a base that is maybe not necessarily useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know we've got a slew of people now here in Shadow Dragon, and all of the personalities are vastly different, you know? And it's really hard to push, like, oh, get out of your boundaries past, you know, 6 to 7 o'clock in the work cycle, you know, um, 
so I just kind of start pushing on things of like higher level cultural ideas like strive for excellence, you know, precision, focus, and teamwork. So you don't have the the rock star type thing as the emerging thing. It's I'm trying to build team of teams. Mm. So we've also experienced where the rock stars don't actually do any work. Right. 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 They're just, they're, you know, they're, they're busy in the green room partying, um, you know, and, and there's not really a lot of productivity coming out of them. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're paying a lot for a big name, but they're, you know, they're putting in 20 hours a month or something like that. Yeah. And then they're, they're constantly on Reddit or something, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah Cause they gotta, they gotta be posting this. They gotta be on that podcast or interviewing here. They're, they have a guest speaking thing over at this thing. And it's like, okay, but we were really hoping you might do some work for our clients. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. There's another, sorry, then there's, there's another variant of that, which I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, but I think it, it, it's in, it's also kind of morphed into a, a sort of a red team, blue team antagonism, which I think is not that cool. I, I couldn't uh, and, agree with you more. I, I think purple was the answer. Yeah, and I think I think what happened was that the because certain players in our space lend themselves uh, in terms of their business model lend themselves more strongly to kind of rock starism. Right, if you're a if you're a you know bounty hunter or a bone researcher or maybe a you know malware researcher you know some of those guys you you get to do things that are you know naturally interesting and exciting for the public um, that's where it makes sense for you to talk and makes sense for you to be public about what you do and so the opportunities for kind of self aggrandizement are, are are bigger and and they're more natural right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're often also, you know, your business model encourages you to get out there and be public and talk about what you're doing because it makes your company look smart. Whereas if you're an incident investigator or a blue teamer or, a, you know, an admin guy, it almost doesn't matter how good you are at what you do or how hard you try or how much you put into it. Um, the opportunities for you to go out there and say, hey, look at how clever I am and look how much I've done are less. Right, because mm-hmm. you know the business you're, model you're doesn't expected support. to do all those security things, right? You're expected, you're expected to have those controls, you know. So everybody and, goes, "Eh, so what?" You, you did all yeah. the things you're expected to do. Yeah, but also because the company you work for isn't going to pay for you to fly over to Vegas and talk at a conference about your internal security controls, right? So, yeah. um, so what we get is we get this kind of waiting uh, in terms of the public voices towards a few niches in our industry and. The other voices just there's no room for them nobody ever hears them mm-hmm. and my sense is that over the last few years there's been the sort of growing resentment almost from those kind of silent hard workers that are getting a little bit sick and tired of hearing yet another red teamer yet another malware hunter yet another exploit developer um you know telling them how clever he is and how dumb they all are or you know not picking up his attack or whatever the case is yeah I, I I I completely agree with all that. I mean, it's I can see that being a hard place too, because like I know 
you know, like when I go places and I'm, I'm at a conference, somebody's like, Oh, you're, you know, you're Dan Clemens. And, and I'm like, Oh man, I hope I didn't offend you on a mailing list. You know, that's my first thought. Thought one that comes to his head. Yeah, I offended one. somebody. And then I'm like, okay, so what did I do? Like, I, I just assume I offended someone. Right. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, some of their posture is like, man, you know, like, you know, they, they say things in a different, like so many different ways, like, uh, I'm not up to your level or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what even what my level is, nor do I care. Like, what are you working on? You know, like, so I think, yeah. um, you just, I don't, I'm, I don't think there's any status there, but, um, I think sometimes guys coming into the, into the industry, like if you remember back when black hat was going, you had a, a real, a few real strong personalities like Jericho from attrition.org. Um, you had, you know, Jeff Moss, you had um, a few of the other guys running that scene in, in DevCon when it was still at Alexa, Alexis park. And there was always this this big push for, well, you know, don't be a vendor, don't be a poser. You know, if you're not writing exploit code, you're not the best. You know, you suck. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. script kitty. And um, I think like the, the that culture that was set in place is still resonating through the information security community because it is pushing into the the reversing side and the exploit dev side and the you know like do you have like it's pushing this do you have what it really takes to be the pure security guy mm. you know? and and i just think that's in the end it's just kind of a misnomer you know like it's it's like yeah what, what does that even mean anymore right i mean yeah, like it's just fake like i mean i remember spending all this time for years on ida and realizing like if i only get like if i get really like if I move from like, I can do this to really super awesome. I save 10 hours a week. Hmm. Like what's the point, right? Like. Well, and I, and I think like in the late nineties, I mean, you could do a lot of different things, you know, as a computer security guy or you know, something like that. I don't, you know, whereas now that it's so fragmented and so specialized and stuff like that, that, you know, you you could be good in one space, but you know there's there's fifty other spaces that you're you're you know miserable in or, or don't even focus on. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, going going back around to what Charles said is you know, you you could be a rock star blue team guy, right? Like, and, and even in that, it's like, well, what am I good at? You go, well, I'm, I'm just really good at protecting you know, uh, you know, ads and accounts and, the, and all this sort of thing in my giant enterprise environment nobody's going to care. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you but know, I, I'm a thought leader in that space. I, you know, I put all my efforts into just protecting this and, eh. But yeah. I mean, um, I'll just, sorry to, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I, like, I remember for me, like in 2008, 2007, I had really kind of gotten like to a new, you know, jaded, point in the industry and I didn't want to go to Devcon Black Hat anymore. And um I remember really chewing on this idea of like quiet confidence will be your strength. 
Like I don't need to, I don't, I really don't care about external praise or having to get up in front of a bunch of people. And I just sat on that. I mean, I've been sitting on that for 12 years and I, and I do think like the doers out there that are doing stuff, who cares about the external likes or the external affirmation, like do what you believe in, you know, like that's what makes a change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, I've got so many thoughts about that. The, the, the one is just to go back to a previous point and say, again, if what we understand as our purpose is to, I suppose, serve society by, you know, helping build and maintain an infrastructure, a security infrastructure that society needs to do its thing in the way that we want it to do its thing. Then I think that does call, you know, that does call to that. It does call to, okay, I'm going to be as good as I can. I'm going to do my thing in the best way that I can. And what I measure myself on is, am I making a, making a contribution, you know, rather than, you know, how many followers do I have or which conferences do I speak at? Um, and, you know, that, it reminds me of a, of, a, of a recent set of discussions that we had. So, so our business got acquired by this European crowd called Orange Cyber Defense. They're the like, cyber defense unit of Orange Mobile. Mm-hmm. And they've got, um, oh, so, and, and it, over the last few years, we, we, we've, we've transitioned from doing just, uh, red teaming stuff, also doing some blue teaming stuff, you know, MDR, EDR, the sort of detection and response type uh, work. And, um, and when they're quite us, they, they have, they have a lot of other teams that are doing similar, similar things and uh, all over Europe, you know, different countries, different languages, different approaches. And it's just been such a fascinating journey to start talking to these guys and understand what they do, how they do it, why they do it that way you know, what's been working, what's not been working. And uh, one of the things that seems to be coming out for me is in that sort of threat detection, attack detection space, very few of the guys ever see um, real kind of smoking gun type attacks. Mm-hmm. You know, you see a lot of little things, but very few of the, the kind of managed detection and response teams ever deal with real you know, bona fide, it's just happened. Uh, the roof is on fire kind of uh, incidents. And I have this sort of growing theory that part of it is because it is kind of a war of attrition. It's kind of a, you know, death by a thousand cuts thing where the, the blue teamer, although they're only ever seeing and responding to apparently small things, are in doing that actually... Um, disrupting that potentially big thing that you'll never know whether it could or couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But um, increasingly it does seem to me like, you know, when you say, Hey, there's a problem with this machine, let's close that down. There's a problem with this. Let's re-image it. There's a, you know, that there's something awry with that user. Let's take him off. Let's isolate that endpoint. And all those little things that nobody will ever write a paper about because they seem pretty mundane uh, that over time have done consistently, they actually do stack up to something. But, but mm-hmm. you know, none of them in and of themselves is particularly interesting or note or noteworthy. Well, I mean that that one one containment of a system could have been, you know, 
the big the, the thing that stopped the big intrusion, right? Yeah. yeah that, well, well exactly. And you'll never know, right? You know, you do, yeah, oh, yeah. We, we saw something funny, so we disabled that account. Well, that could have been the account. Yeah. Yeah, and and unfortunately, in the in the kind of the managed services space where we play, you you often don't get to close the sort of intelligence loop. If you, if you know what I mean. So you tell the customer, hey, this is happening. We recommend this action. The customer does it. And that's the end of it. You know, you never get to investigate the machine. You never get to see the artifacts. So you, you can't finish the story, which is frustrating. That's but funny. As my, you say, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just to say, my, my youngest son worked in a sock this summer. And uh, about two weeks in, he, he came to me and he's like, this sock thing. He's like, I thought there'd be a lot more catching bad guys involved in this. It's like, <laughs> I, I'm just opening tickets, quarantining stuff, and closing tickets. He's like, not a lot of bad guy catching. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I, I suppose it's kind of the, the broken window policing, uh, you know, paradigm. You, mm -hmm. you, you keep the streets clean uh, and it's much less likely that something big and bad is, is going to happen. Yeah, and I, th you know, I think sometimes also a company that's got itself to that maturity level where they, you know, they've actually got it, you know, got an MDR solution or an EDR solution in place and things like that. You know, they're, they're almost by description a little bit better off, right? They're taking a bunch of other steps to get to that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's also that's also true, and and also like a, you know, an MDR program or a vulnerability management program generally requires a certain amount of uh, architectural discipline, you know, you're kind of forcing people to think about what they've got, what does the inventory look like, what's more valuable, sort of creates other disciplines that has sort of downstream effects that contribute mm -hmm. to better security. That's uh, a huge thing, this intrusion we're dealing with right now, I mean, that Dan talked about early on, uh, we have no idea how many computers they have. We just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, they don't we know. still don't know. Three weeks later, we still don't know, you know, and, uh, yeah. and, you know they've got a bunch of other vendors in here at this point and they're complaining about the same thing it's like we think we have 75 80 percent coverage but we can't tell because you can't tell us what you have yeah yeah exactly and uh yeah in so many ways i think those kinds of programs force that kind of discipline at least if your provider is has got some modicum of integrity you know they're going to be on your case to uh you know to to to, to get that uh, database filled out and you know, start adding, you know, risk ratings and uh, severity ratings to things. So you can sort of start to develop a picture of what they have or don't have. The, uh, the, the other data point, which kind of speaks to what you were saying that we have from those discussions is, you know, we all have, uh, obviously it's MDR, right? So the, the idea is that you, you sell a managed seam or a managed, you know, whatever to see what's going on. And then at the back of that, you've got a response capability, you know, where someone's going to parachute in or you're going to deploy something out to the endpoint mm -hmm. to isolate it and do the investigations. And uh, we were comparing notes on how often that response capability is actually triggered. And it's like across the board, it's almost never. Like it very, very seldom happens. It's, it happens so little that when it happens, it's notable. Mm. But one of, the, yeah. one of the companies in the, like in the group, they also have like a red button service on their website, you know, where you can uh, you can call in and say, hey, this thing has just happened. And they reckon they get like 10 times as much inbound traffic via the, via the website as they do via the, the, the MDR offering. 
And then in fact, they grow their business that way around, not the other way around, which is what they kind of expected would happen. That supports yeah. Dan's whole theory. So, yeah. Yeah. I've got this, you know, I've been tracking this theory that these other guys have been pushing out. Um, they've, they've analyzed all these like hundreds and hundreds of businesses and really kind of the, the talking points that they, they gave me were like, if you just put a buy now button on any of your businesses, like a call to action, your revenue increase will, will increase in, and double over the course of 18 months. Because oh, if, they're, yeah. if they're on your website or on your business, Amazon's trained people enough to now be just be like, okay, I'm sold on this. I trust these guys. Boom. Do it. So we're going to do a, a, a test run on, you know, every, you know, packet ninjas and shadow dragon and shadow dragon federal and just what do data forensics, lose, right? Like what do we have to lose if, even if it's 8% increase every year, like that's still huge. Yeah. Right. right. And what does that button cost numbers. you? Right. Nothing. Yeah, what's it going to cost you to just have the button and a drop down and Hey, we don't need to process your credit cards or anything or just boom, you know, Talk to place, I, place your. I think it speaks to other things too, like like value proposition. If what you're if what you're offering the customer can be distilled into, buy this now, right now. We'll, you take it, we'll give it to you, and this is the value that it's going to add. Mm-hmm. I think that's increasingly attractive to buyers. Yeah, it, it has the message has to be clear, concise, and you know, no more than three facts. Yeah, that's my rule. You know, and like, so we're just going to go through everything and just do there need to be 15 pages? No, like there needs to be like, how do we isolate all these super technical things? So we're not suffering from the curse of knowledge, you know, like the, the, the buyer and the client, they don't have enough, you know, they can only consume so many informational facts in their, you know, brain diet. We're selling trust. Yeah. Always selling trust. Always mm-hmm. selling trust. It's interesting because I was doing a tabletop exercise, not our tabletop with a client last week, uh, Thursday, I think. And uh, we are their IR provider. <laughs> we are their DFIR provider. And, and so we're going through this tabletop. It's insider. And it's a tough, tough, tough thing to, to you know, track. And um, they went a really long time trying to do stuff in-house before somebody finally said, well, we, we could call our outside forensics team, right? I was like, yeah, no, I, in fact, I'm sitting here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be, it'd be really cool if maybe you followed your IR plan and, you know, notified us. Um, but I have talked to a number of clients, you know, during, you know, not, not critical instances where they're like, oh, we really should have called you on that last thing we had. I'm like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, yeah. we were always right there. So it's, it's, it's odd to me. Like, I, I don't, I think there's some hesitancy to like, you know, even when you have a situation set up, where you have support vendor and stuff like that to actually make that decision that this is serious enough that I need to, I, that I can't handle this myself. Yeah. Right. You know, that they yeah. kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to acknowledge that it's, that serious that I should go get some help. Yeah, I would like to map that out by state. You know, <laughs> like you get no callers from Texas. Ever. 
It's more bullets of chewing tobacco. We got this. Yeah, Germany, Germany people, people in Germany, they never call. They never call. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> the, French, um, the French, they shame you for even being your vendor, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that button idea is uh, interesting, though. And I've actually uh, talked to my marketing folks about that, too, that, you know, like that ability to just go, hey, uh, I was on your website and I think I really need some help. Click. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a great idea. Well, especially if you already have the capability, right? You've got the guys stood by and, you know, mm-hmm you know, what your processes and procedures look like. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's that's one of the big <laughs> the big ones. <laughs> like, even in places where they're supposed to have that, they just don't have that, you know. Yeah. We all know it. It's okay. So, Charles, If you're listening out there, it's not a surprise. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think retainers are along, retainers and IR, so that's a whole rabbit trail we could go down. But, but I um, want to talk about Charles Ireland cybersecurity conference presentation because I, I've just been running around like challenging sock managers everywhere with that. Um, well, this, Charles, so this is the, the, you know, is the threat intelligence worth it? What is threat intelligence? Oh, like? yeah. Can we, Dude. can we all go down that trail and all right, so let me let me let me preface this with what three four years ago Dan and I were at RSA and we're sitting with some guys from PayPal, and they just gone through this big kind of a, a internal like staring at their own belly button sort of thing about like what's our threat intelligence really worth? We're buying all this stuff. How much overlap is there? You know, how useful is this stuff really? You know, what's what's the IP spread on this thing look like, and all that. And and they'd come to very and I, I don't want to. You know, they're exactly the same as yours, but, but, but some, some also sort of startling conclusions, sort of like what you came to. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I don't know, Dan, and I've probably talked about it 10,000 times since then, but, uh, but then, you know, watch your presentation. I was like, yes, yes, there, there's the numbers. There's the things there's, you know, this is being repeated by somebody completely different, independent from mm. that whole, whole situation and coming to the same conclusion. Well, and, and, and so let me kind of just put this out there like for those that um that don't know the background just to be super verbose the the topic is you know is threat intelligence really changing things in your environment is it moving to the security needle one way or the other um just so you know i didn't see the talk but i've you know watched some portions of it but not all of it and some of the people on the podcast may not know. It's awesome. It's my favorite thing. We got to present the idea of <laughs> his thing. And uh, <laughs> maybe Charles can summarize it for us. Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I could, I could talk about that talk for days because I, I find so many elements of it. So interesting. But um, Dan, you know, you, you, you said that, you know, part of what you want to do with this message is to encourage people. So let me, let me tell the story and I'm going to try and put it like encourage people spin on it. So yeah, the, yeah. the story is when, when SensePost got acquired, um, I got tasked by our new owners to stand up this MDR operation. A very traditional kind of managed scene with a whole lot of little bits and pieces. And we're like genuinely trying to, to make things work for our clients. And one of the problems that we had was 
threat intelligence. And by threat intelligence, I mean like the atomic threat intelligence, the, the, the data that you, that you get from open source or from commercial vendors that tells you this IP, this domain, this email address, this file hash, whatever it is, is kind of associated with badness. It's got a history of badness. And the, and the, the paradigm, like when I, so, and the starting point for me was we were spending an enormous amount of time tracking down uh, effectively alerts that were raised because we had seen something that had previously been noted as bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it was enormous, hours and hours and hours a week, kind of looking at these um, traffic from these quote unquote bad sources. And then just finding out that there was some other explanation that the, you know, that it just wasn't bad in the end. And um, it started this debate about getting better threat intelligence. So what does that look like? And where do you get it? And you know, how do you assess it? And we started shopping around looking, you know, for better threat intelligence. And the more I spoke to people, the more kind of I, I got this itch, you know, this the sense of like I'm not, I, could, I couldn't quite understand i couldn't quite buy what they were saying and i wasn't coming from a place of someone who had a lot of previous experience or um kind of knew the industry from that point of view i was literally just listening to the guy's pitch and trying to understand what he was saying and trying to reconcile that incidentally with how much i would be paying him for it mm-hmm. and the more i listened kind of the more intellectually frustrated i got with just not being able to understand what the value proposition really was so Instead of buying something, we, we conceived an experiment. And the experiment said, let's take our customer base and split them into like a control group and a, and a test group. We'd use the one group to generate threat intelligence. So notionally, what we said is, if, if we confirm that something bad has happened on this network, let's take those indicators, the IP addresses, hashes, whatever, and let's build them into a threat intelligence list. And then let's measure whether in fact we ever see that threat intelligence with the other group of customers. So, you know, controlled experiment that tests Mm -hmm. the the fundamental value proposition of the threat intelligence industry. Um, And we did that over about six months, six months of data. We had about one and a half billion indicators that we looked at. And then we we could kind of slice and dice the data almost any way we wanted, you know, and, and do various thought experiments. And when I, when I started seeing the results, I was like, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe them. And so I, I tried again and I tried again and I looked at the data in different ways. Um, and by the time I actually got to do the presentation at Black Hat, I was petrified. Like I really thought I'm, I'm stepping way out of line here. Um, I, I can't believe my own findings. And the, the best I could come to was to say, look, here's, Here's what we did. Here's the data. Literally, we, you know, we published all the data. And these are my conclusions and kind of hit me. You know, it was sort of mm-hmm. the, the place that I got to. And what the data said was that less than 4% of the verified bad indicators that we saw from the one group ever manifest in the other group. So, you know, out of 100 of those uh, alarms, I guess, that you chase down, you know, 96 of them are going to just be wasting your time. And the other four, um, if you haven't processed them within two days, you're basically wasting your time. Then they're, they're gone. You're not going to see them again. Mm-hmm. And um, so over the Brian, weekend, they're no good. Yeah, over the weekend, they're no good. By the time you come in on Monday, too late. 
you know, it's not, it's not doing anything for you. Well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll also add into that. So we took, uh, we, we took all the zone H data from zone H and we, we were licensed to do it and we paid and got all the data for 20 years. And, um, so we took all the IP addresses and the domains of, you know, that got hacked and then, uh, partnered up with PayPal and said, let's go look through all the, all the spam data mines out there that are publicly accessible and see, you know, what happened first? Was there a compromise on this host? And there was, you know, let's say pollution artifacts out there, you know, exploit landing sites and spam and, and other things. Um, or was the defacement first and, and what's more valuable just from that one set of data? Yeah. And so after we ran all the numbers and everything and, and looked at all the data, what, what ended up being interesting was one defaced page or one defaced site would give you a zero to seven day lead time on the spamming and the exploit landing. And like, and, and and that was like, I mean, I I think that was like the, you know, let's say it's the dumbest thing you could do. Yeah. Thing you (laughs) could do like, but it seems to also have a even better impact than just, you know, all this other IP reputation stuff, you know, like, yeah. Um, but that was kind of eye opening well, to me as well, just cause I was like, wow, like I didn't, I just thought a defaced page. I mean, that's like what you do when you're a teenager, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and Charles information, your, your data supported what we'd kind of heard, you know, over drinks from the PayPal guys, you know, a, a couple of years earlier and always been rattling around in my brain. Um, you know, but, but you had like, you know, no shit analysis. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, I said I'd sort of swing around to an encouragement. This this is the thing that I found the most interesting about that research. I, look, I, I still don't have a definitive view on threat intelligence or not threat intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I think there's a lot more work that could be done. But what was interesting to me was the response I got to that presentation, which was overwhelmingly in line with what you're saying, Brian. People were like, I knew it. I knew it. Like everyone had the same sense, right? Everyone was like, there's something not right about this. It's not really working. And all it took was for someone to go and say, I'm actually going to test it. I'm going to follow my instinct. I'm going to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of think about this with with an open mind. Uh, And just like what you guys did, Dan, like let's test some of this stuff and let's see what works and what doesn't work. Instead of, instead of, I, I guess, kind of just, you know, drinking someone else's Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you got to have this, you got to have this tool, you got to have this threat you gotta, feed. Yeah. You got to yeah. put all these things in place and that's what makes you secure. And maybe that's not what makes you secure. It, it, exactly. Or if it does make you secure, do, do we know why, you know, or do we know how much? Right. And, right. you know, is this, is this, is it the most efficient way? Because, you know, a lot of people would say to me off the back of the threat intelligence stuff is, you know, if, even if it's only 4% effective, um, isn't, you know, aren't those 4% isn't better to have them than not to have them. Um, but when you start to think about it, I'm like, actually, no, I don't think it is better to have them. Yeah. For, for the dollar right. cost per percentage point. No. 
No, it's, it's just not. not. And, and, and we, could, we could rather be spending our time and our energy uh, and our creativity doing something that maybe does make a difference. And that was what I thought was super interesting was you guys took that the next, next logical kind of step and went to the, to the localized honeypot data. Yeah. And, and that for me was, that, that was like the, you know, here's the, here's the news, but here's kind of the solution set that goes with this. I thought that was, I hadn't seen that before. Yeah. So I think, I think solution set is, is strong for what we discovered and it was kind of an accidental discovery, but while we were doing the research, we, we also have this very basic honey net, right. That we run as a, as a provider. And so we just fed the honey net data into the same kind of analysis stream. And it turned out to be at least three times as efficient in, in predicting bad behavior uh, for effectively zero dollar, dollar cost. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I say it without shame, what we took away from that exercise is that we've effectively removed threat intelligence from our operations. Mm-hmm. We, we use the honeypot uh, we cross correlated with with activity that we see uh, from from other sources and on our customers' network, and we fully automated that whole process. So now, you know, I create a, if you like, a, an automatic block list for our customers that's based on things that we've seen, you know, at at our other customers in real time. We expose it via an API. The customers pull it down and they do with it what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and we exp- and we expend zero analyst time on that. What it means is my analysts can now spend the, you know, whatever it was, 40 minutes per analyst per day that we were spending on chasing down, you know, threat intelligence, false positives. We can now, you know, work on building threat hunting playlists or, mm-hmm. you know, something else that, that, would, that can conceivably add value. But I'm certainly not wasting time doing yeah. that thing. And that, that I proved to myself. That, you know, we weren't getting any value from it and neither were our customers. Well, uh, so, also... I'll, I'll add in there for those guys that are doing the network perimeter stuff and um, enterprise support. Like I used to always put an external, um, you know, virtual IP above and below the real externally exposed IP address. And then just tie those two, you know, those two IPs above and below the, external the true ip that has a real service on it to a little breed tarpet or scanning up or down you know like boom i know like it's not going to get to my external you know exposed service and then do the same thing on ports above and below that the real services i have even if they jump over you know so it's like at no cost you know correlate Mm -hmm and send this back out blocking on the perimeter. And there's, you know, it's just what matters to me, you know, what matters to my enterprise or whatever. And um, so I think, you know, same thing you're doing, just there's no sexiness to that other than a few, you know, network segments and architectural changes that, that, that really pushes certain players to move on to the next target. Absolutely. Yeah. Isn't that the reality of everything we do? It's it's never the sexy stuff that's the most effective, right? Yeah. Right. All, all the really effective solutions are boring and ugly and no fun to do. Well, yeah, I, I think being successful in the space is you're okay with boring. 
Yeah. Right. Like, absolutely. Like I remember we had an analyst or somebody in the, in the, on the team a few years ago and they wanted to be this big investigator. And I was like, look, we don't do investigate. We don't do investigations anymore, but if we have anything coming in the door for a friend, we'll show, show it over to you. And um, this person would write the, you know, they do the thing and they got trained and they just couldn't push out a good product because they wanted, they wanted to fit their artifacts into a narrative. Yeah. Right. And so I, I remember just watching these reports and going over them and just thinking, man, this person is just like, I'm trying to give them some insights into this and we're doing this for free for somebody. And, but this person is not okay with the boring artifacts, the boring little steps that, you know, come into play. Um, They want, they want to make, they want to make a movie, right? Like, and I told them that and they were just like, the look on their face was just, you know, it was a shock to their system. It was like somebody that goes and does the, the, that TV show where they, they sing and, you know, they, they get on there and, and the guy's like, Oh, you suck. You know, they they Um, find out for the first time they're not good. (laughs) Yeah. They find out for the first time they're not good. And I was like, man, I hate to crush the dreams here, but, you know, all of this work is about being okay with all the boring artifacts and making a timeline and, you know, like not fitting a narrative. And and it's the same thing with like reversing or exploit stuff or spending five days on recon. Like it's all these little tiny things, which you don't know what they add up to. And so you yeah. get the data together, let the data tell that story, you know? So, so coming back around, I, I have a honeypot question. So I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them because it's just not part of my 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 world. Um, but after watching your presentation, I was like, hmm, I, I should really, you know, get myself together on this. And it looks like a lot of the the work on that is is kind of old, outdated, things like that. We, what are you using? What's your favorite? What's your thing right now? I'm actually so glad you you glad you asked me that question um, because I wanted to tell you another Senspo story and that's a that's a perfect segue into it. Um, <laughs> let me let me answer that question. There are in in two ways. We deploy honeypots in two ways. Uh, the they're they're in our world um, primarily they act as traps. So we're not using them for intelligence. We're not trying to like discern what the bad guy is doing. It's much more kind of Dan's approach of if he's, if, if somebody is here, then they shouldn't, and they shouldn't be here. Um, and by, def, by definition, they shouldn't be here. And we know therefore that there's something here to be investigated. That's the, that's the primary uh, use case. So the investigative team may put up a honeypot for something specific to ask, answer a specific kind of question. But mostly the, the idea is that um, you're, you're putting down traps, I guess, that, um, that trigger when the bad guy or the malicious insider is doing something or going somewhere where they, where they shouldn't. And so it's a very low cost, high fidelity indicator of suspiciousness, I guess. And in the MDR world, 
I consider that to be extraordinarily valuable because mm -hmm. you, the, it kind of inverts the whole needle in a haystack type thing. You know, this, this mindset that we have that will pull all the data in and then somehow use machine learning magic or something to find the bad guy in there, uh, which I, I don't think is impossible. And I think some guys do it better than others, but it's a fundamentally difficult thing yeah. to do. Whereas traps are exactly the inverse, you know, it's like, it's simple. It's um, the value proposition is one dimensional um, and it works the way it says, you know, there's just no, no black boxes. It's just a basic, a basic thing. So in principle, that's how we like to uh, deploy honeypots. The story I wanted to tell you was um, about a guy called Harun Mir who was also one of the early SensePost guys, just like uh, Rulof Temming. And when we got acquired, you know, Rulof went off and did uh, Paterva and Maltigo and Harun went off and started a business called Thinks. And uh, Thinks kind of floated around trying to solve, you know, various kinds of problems. They sort of set themselves up as an applied research um, team. And they were, you know, experimenting, I guess, with different products and different outputs. And then eventually stumbled on this idea where stumbled is probably not fair evolved this idea of building very simple effective honey traps i guess is, is what it is uh, and they've evolved that now to a to a product that is um you know what made me think of it dan was when you were talking about selling trust mm -hmm. because I, I i find it they, they have become very highly regarded with an extremely simple technology that basically emulates a machine of some description but at a like an absolutely superficial way you know just looks a little bit like a web server or a little bit like a file server or a little bit like a whatever you know um, operational system and um, and and if somebody tries to interact with it in any way it fires off an alert with as much information about that interaction as it possibly can and uh, they can do the same thing with like data artifacts you know, files, directories, users, websites, AWS cookies, you know, kind of you name it. And they've got a version of it that you can, that you can place very kind of strategically in your environment. And the idea is very simply, if somebody ever interacts with this thing, it'll fire off an alert and the customer, or in our case, my team can pick that up. And then we can use the data that we collect to then investigate the, the narrative, as you said, um, mm -hmm. Dan. Um, so, and we use that very extensively and I really like it in, in contrast to other, you know, quote unquote, deception technologies that are extremely complex and extremely, uh, multifaceted. This is cheap. It's simple. It deploys in minutes and it sort of does what it says and says what it does. What was the name of the company again? Thinks. They're called Thinks. Yeah. T-H-I-N-K-S-T. Um, yeah. but, but speaking of trust, the, 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 the thought that it triggered with me was, um, you know, it's, it's very hard for any kind of intelligence service or product. So intelligence would be things like MDR, vulnerability scanning, uh, bug hunting, um, anything where there's unknown unknowns. It's very hard to earn trust because how does the customer ever know how many of the unknown unknowns you've made known, you know, uh, and particularly when nothing is happening, how do you know that something is happening? And that's, uh, it makes those kinds of services very difficult to market and sell. Mm -hmm. It makes it very hard for the customer to, to trust you. And I think the same is true for the canaries, right? You, your canary doesn't trigger. And how do you know whether that's because the thing's not working 
or whether the concept is flawed or you know whether just simply nobody was in your environment and i think how things have earned trust which i think again is like a word of encouragement is firstly through executing on the things that you can see mm-hmm. so you know their, their their pricing is clear it's transparent it's easy to use their delivery is um you know absolutely sort of apple grade sexy you order it you get it they follow up their customer services is outstanding um so the visible parts of the product are extremely uh, trust inducing you know it looks good it feels good all the things that you can measure work in the way that you expect but the other and maybe more important thing i think is the transparency mm-hmm. you can you can test a canary immediately and instantly uh, based exactly on what it says it's going to do and yeah. and that simplicity and that transparency it, it's limited because there's a whole lot of things they don't do and they'll you know they'll say it on the website they don't run ml they you know they don't do uh, you know, multiple personalities. They don't try and learn your environment. They just pretend to be something and let you know when something interacts with them. And because you understand what that is, you can test it and that, it, that develops a kind of a, a trust. And I think we could do much more of that. I agree. And the way that I see them compared to some of the other deception, like let's say deception technologies, which is just another way to say honey, honey trap, honey, honey something, rock, yeah, whatever. Um, like, they never really kind of looking at their website, they never really took on this role of like, we're the hero. Mm. We're going to save you when everything's burning because we have all this complex stuff. It's just, no, we're a guide. We're going to put, put these things out there that are going to help you be, you know, guide you towards another action. And it's just, Mm. you know, like, Mm. and I think like the more companies come out and say like, no, we're going to protect you. We're going to be the hero. It's, it creates a situation where you're going to probably fail at scale. Mm. You know, um, I know just for, for us, like we've had so many times, like we've tried to do all these marketing, like you, you talk with marketing people and they always have all these <laughs> different ways to do things and it doesn't make any sense. And I get angry and, and then they write something like, so you guys protect this. I'm like, no, Mm-mm. We don't protect anything. They're like, wait, what? This is security. Security protects. I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, like, so I think that Haroon did really good in making sure that, like, the expectations of what they're delivering are set pretty well. And mm-hmm. I do like that that flat, you know, like, the pricing is right there, and he's just moving and shaking. And, yeah, and um, annual subscription pricing. Yeah, yeah. And, and then... I also, I don't know if he ever took on VC, but for me, like, it just seemed like he was pushing, like, through things, like, this is authenticity. Mm. You know, he can't be more, you know, like, he, he, he's always been who he is, and, and I think that was always cool, um, and that bled over into the culture of that company, you know. Mm. So, I just, I just dug up the URL there, uh, URL is canary, like the bird dot tools mm. i think that's the open source is that the open source one or is that no the that's, that's, one? that's that's the commercial, commercial one's one. got the pricing got the how it works got the examples customer use cases the, mm. the whole bits right there um mm. and, and you're right it's, it's a it's an absolutely sexy and compelling website I yeah i i love it and um 
I've, I've really also tried to emulate it. You know, one, one of the things I did early on, to, to your point about marketing then, with, with our MDR offering, so I, also took, I also took all mention of, you know, pr protect you against or um, reduce dwell time or, um, you know, stop intrusions or, you know, mm -hmm. stop attackers, took all of that stuff out and uh, started speaking about the things that I think we do do. You know, we, we talk about indicators. We'll present you with indicators of attack. We'll present you with indicators of compromise or indicators of risk. And then we'll do our best to put those into context with you, for you, and we'll do our best to help you think about a, um, an appropriate response to that indicator. But that's the volume, that's the value proposition. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna find and stop intrusions in your, in your network. That is, not, that is not what we do. You know, I don't see how we're capable of doing that ever. When I see, uh, you know, when I see people talking about, who is it that's talking about it like this now? Is it, is it, is it um, CrowdStrike that talks about the 10-10-1? Um, uh, this is sort of the amount of time that you're supposed to respond, detect, respond, and, uh, and disrupt. I think they, you know, they said it's like 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and one minute or something. People were talking about, you know, that's one article that said, you know, more than 50% don't, more than 50% of businesses don't detect intrusions within one minute. And I was like, oh my God, that's awful. You know, detect intrusions in one minute. I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever detected an intrusion, <laughs> ever. And I've been trying right. really hard, you know, I just, <laughs> <laughs> if the baseline is doing it within one minute, then I'm, you know, I'm going to pack up and go home. Uh, it's it funny. more than one minute to open up that, you know, that interface on Splunk. I don't even know how, how these other guys are doing it in one minute. So this is funny. Like, um, but, but there's, a, there's, yeah. there, there's a measurement there that's wrong, right? Like that's, that's the core of that. It's like, yeah, the, the detective that something happened and the actual, you know, putting that together, making some sort of decision about it, all that. I mean, they're, they're selling that like, you know, oh, we, we detected it and that's the end of the story. Yeah. There's, there's, there's well, a lot more to the story than just, I got a detection notice. Yeah. And, and, and for me, again, it comes down to, to, to clarity and precision in your, you know, in your, in your, in your language. So I, I totally get that you can detect indicators of something within sure. and, you know, even push them into triage within a minute. Uh, whether you can then go from an indicator into any kind of narrative within 10 minutes or an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. You guys probably know better than me, but it feels yeah. like sometimes you could, yeah, I, but I mostly you can't. I don't think you can do it at scale in an inter like in a real enterprise. I mean, like, sure. You can, you can have triage and, and pagers and, you know, whoever has pagers anymore and, and SMS <laughs> messages, you know, I bet but, you have a pager. Yeah, I don't have a pager anymore. I did have one for a while, um, <laughs> into the two thousands probably. So, but um, I I I have a talk that I've put together that I haven't really published, but it's it's really the the uh, true cost economics of attribution, and that you know the other side of of the investigation, like after you know what happened what's the cost to fix what happened and if you want to take it farther let's just talk numbers on 
what's the cost of if you want to figure out who and what the business risk is. These are all very different line items and different outcomes, you know, and I don't know if like, I, I just wish when they, they talk about, you know, that 10, 10, one, like what's the, what's the true cost economics there? You know, like mm-hmm. what does that really look like when you have this system in place and all these processes in place and what's the maturity profile of that client that has that capability because i haven't met it mm. yet right like anywhere <laughs> like, and um i don't know i did like brian and i have been on this big kick of just when we talk to clients and stuff like that what where are they in their in their maturity cycle you know like and then let's map tools and processes into each bit so then we're not really even being that hero we're just saying well this is where you are this is where you want to go this is the process and these are the tools you'll get when you get there mm. so it's, I, I spend all my time just convincing people they should actually store logs right like and that's i swear i spent 80 percent of my time convincing clients that like no you really really do need to capture these logs yeah mm. and, and Meanwhile, hard drives are like the cheapest they've ever been in the history of time. I know. Storage is so cheap. It's so so many tools to let you capture all that stuff. And people are just like, uh, I don't know. I'm not completely convinced. I, th- yeah. I, think, we sh- I think we should buy a, you know, an, an AI tool. I'm like, what? what? Yeah, like <laughs> to, to, to do AI on what? Like you don't have any logs. Uh, on what data? What like, I- no, no, no. I got a better idea. Uh, okay. Uh, such is my life. So, so Charles, if you could give some words of wisdom to some of the younger guys coming into the industry, what are some things that you would leave them with? Um, just expectations, things to pursue, you know, where they're going to be in 20 years. Um, what does that look like to you for them? Well, those are good questions. Do I have to respond in Yoda talk? Yeah. dark the future is wisdom must we have <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> let me try, let me try. Like, I, I can do this okay um, um. Long, long, logs you have not findings you will have less <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> logs have you not uh, Dan what do I think here we go I think more than anything, I think I think my, my word of encouragement would be, I think security more than ever today matters. And I think that is super exciting. Uh, it's also super scary. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's becoming a hard time for us. I think it's becoming a time where we have to be really uh, honest and, and hard with ourselves and with each other. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's not fun. I think that's something we've, we've managed to avoid for decades. But I, I think it's changing. The downside is there's going to be less BS. There's going to be fewer rock stars. It's going to be um, more rigor uh, in what we do. But the upside is I, I think it really matters. I think, I think we're in a position as security people to, to really contribute to shaping a world that we want to see. You know, look around you. Everything from the 
the management of our um, you know our financial systems to the running of democracy to the you know the 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 plight of of uh, protesters in in Hong Kong and and dissidents in China you know that it's all affected by technology by security by the security mm -hmm. of technology we're touching things that really matter and um, yeah I would say you know the people like think about what you do as something that matters and yeah. and approach it in that way and the rest will follow you know I agree I mean that I. I never really like I remember when I was at Health South years ago before I jumped ship and started packing ninjas. I remember sitting there and I talked to my dad and I'm like, Dad, I just hate this job. You know, like I hate I'm here really only for a paycheck and he just said, Look, if you're there for a paycheck, it's time for you to go, buddy, because you're just sitting there rotting, you know? Mm. And I jumped ship and never really looked back and, and always, you know, it was always about for me, you know, doing what I thought was right and making an impact. And, you know, there's a lot of stumbling in that, but I agree with you. Like, I just think that you've got to figure out what you're going to pursue and strive for excellence. And then you don't really know where that's going to take you. That's the roller coaster. Hmm. Like I, I, I remember, you know, after I wrote that first version of social net and we used it for a few years and we even sold it for a few years. It wasn't until I used it in an investigation and we, you know, identified this human trafficker, got him arrested. And, you know, like there was this emotional side of me that was triggered where I thought, you know, this is making a difference. Like, and striving for that excellence through the 20 years, you know, like I was just, you know, you know, I had dyed hair when I had hair and I was this punk hacker looking dude and life skills were questionable. Um, but I was striving for this excellence, but I never would have thought that would have taken it to this other level of somehow this, this did really kind of like, impact somebody else's life that I never met, you know? Um, and, and that's, you know, kind of rambling on here. Like there's that and a few other examples where I just started really kind of shifting my, my mindset of this isn't about cyber anymore. You know, like there's the other side of the coin is impacting a physical part of the universe, you know, like, it's not just about this enterprise network. It could be what you learn from it to help someone else in a way that, you know, isn't, Oh, look at how yeah. much awesome stuff I have. You know, it's just, um, we never know what that other side of the story is, but we do have to follow our heart towards doing our best and, and being quiet um, along the way. I think just listening for the lesson. Um, yeah. And and to Brian's point, I think the the boring stuff also matters. You know, we we you, you kind of long for that moment in your career where, like you, you know, you realize, God, I'm I'm actually taking down a human trafficking ring, or I'm actually I actually you know pulled the kill switch on a piece of virulent malware or whatever, you know. But those are you know those are once in a decade experiences. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to put yourself in the position where you have that 
impact. That shouldn't be what we're striving for. You know, it's those, right. those little things, you know, the, the clean streets kind of mindset, you shut down small things, you take petty crime off the streets and the big stuff fades. And uh, yeah, I think the, there's a, those moments it. are just small moments of like the Oasis, you know, like, or like when mm. you get a thank you from the customer other than a check, you know, mm, mm. or, 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 or even like a bottle of scotch, you know, like there's those little things where I'm like, man, that was cool. <laughs> you know, mm. like I didn't expect that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Hey guys, I really got to go. Yeah. It, me was, too. it was a ton of fun. All right. Awesome. Brian, Bye-bye. Dan, that was awesome. Thanks for me. See ya. Thanks. Cheers guys. Bye. Bye.